0: Well, what's happened here today, and greetings, God bless you, my wife sends you love and greetings. She would be here, but uh, schedules just didn't permit, and kind of a whirlwind trip in and out. But I have to come at least once a year to check on you guys to make sure you're doing well. And I can say you are doing exceedingly well, and that's wonderful. But I've been stirred ever since this morning started because it's confirmed what i felt for a couple of weeks, I should say publicly, This is not catering, this is not patronizing, this is just honoring where honor is due. And this is a special place, the Oasis is that. And under leadership, Apostle Tim and Carol and their team of leaders, uh, they are stewarding basically a kingdom hub for our nation and the nations. They've been teaching the rising ecclesia before people could pronounce ecclesia, amen. And so we wanna honor them today. And uh, so we got a lot of stories. We get started, we get to tell a lot of stories. We won't have time for stories today, but I'm not just saying I'm glad to be here at my age. I'm glad to be anywhere. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Well, that's enough of that. Find your Bibles. Find Genesis 14. It's near the front. That'll help you. Genesis 14. Boy, today is just things are exploding. I don't have time to give testimony, but I've got to get to the Word of God or I'll be in trouble with the Lord, and that's not a good thing to do. Okay, Genesis 14 and beginning at verse number 17. This morning we have a title to the message, Uh, the tape room likes that, or the DVD room likes that. The title is The Pathway to Kingdom Conquest. When you sang this morning, the victory is mine before I see the promise, yes, you set me up, thank you. The message today is how you and I progress on the pathway toward our calling and ministry being fulfilled in ways that impact not just the people of God globally, but the nations around the world. We are on a journey to conquest. We're not on our way to defeat. We're on our way to victory. I remember those old songs. I remember the song, There's Victory in Jesus. Amen. He plunged me beneath the blood. Our youngest daughter's a child. Sang that one day, and she sang "Victory in Jesus." He punched me to victory. <laughs> Amen. That was her version as a young girl. Okay, Genesis 14, quickly, verse 17. After his return, that is Abraham, from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tenth of all. Father, thank you now for the ministry of your Spirit, who is our ultimate teacher. Just coming among us now and releasing word today that goes beyond just a familiar story but goes into levels of revelation, application, and implementation concerning your kingdom agenda for our lives, for your people, for our nation, and for the nations of the world. We thank you for it in Jesus' name, and the Lord's people said together, amen and amen. I begin with a simple statement just to get us on the same page because many are watching, as you know, beyond those here in the auditorium in Middletown. Here's my opening statement. If the gates of hell do not prevail against the ecclesia church that Jesus is building, then the ecclesia church that Jesus is building through the keys of the kingdom prevails against hell. This is not rocket science, this is theology 101. Somebody's gonna win. Somebody's gonna lose. I know you know you're called to victory. That's not just theologically accurate. I know we're beginning to experience that in our lives as we're just seeing God do some awesome things in very troublesome times. We're being called today, if I could say it bottom line, to be what we heard so often in Scripture, especially the last book of the Bible in chapters two and three that the body of Christ individually and as local churches or churches in a region are called to be overcomers. Those seven churches in Asia Minor, they were being weakened by internal problems. They were being attacked by the, uh, from without and persecuted by the emperor cult, where in the early first century New Testament world, the Roman Caesars were worshipped as God. And up there in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey where the seven churches were, I'm not going to go there today but just to introduce all this stuff, was the epicenter of the emperor cult of worship. It was the epicenter of Christianity. Because once Jerusalem had been destroyed in A.D. 70, the center of Christianity moved from Israel, northwestward, up into Asia Minor, where John the Apostle, Paul the Apostle, and those other teams ministered there. But it was, it was a location where two epicenters were colliding It's either Christ or Caesar. And for those who chose Caesar then or choose Caesar today, we call that by technical word, it's called statism, the worship of the state. The elevation of the civil government, come on, beyond the boundaries God intended when he created and designed civil government. Romans 13 talks about that. So the call upon you and me is the call that came to them. We're called to be overcomers. The word there is niko. The niko. We're called to be overcomers. Thank you of all that is standing against the agenda of our enthroned, exalted King. It ties in with Paul's word in Romans eight thirty-seven. You and I are called to be more than conquerors. The word there, conquer, is the same word as nico. Overcomer and conquer, they're simply synonyms. But I love this. When Paul says we are more than conquerors, the word more in <laughs> the original text, the Bible's amazing. Don't love the Bible? I love the Bible. It says there before the word conquer, more conquer, the word more is hyper. We were called to be preeminently victorious and so here's our story Abram come on has been stirred up because he found out those five ugly Babylonian kings that attacked Sodom and Gomorrah had taken his nephew Lot captive so Abram is stirred he gets his 318 men interesting he had 18 more than Gideon whatever And he'd formed some uh, alliance with Aner and Ishko and Mamre who were leaders in Canaan. That was amazing, in favor of the Canaanites. needs there to take their land, go figure. And so they pursue those five kings all the way north to Dan, Dan. There's still a gate there that's 3,800 years old. Of course, some erosion, some deterioration still standing where Abram passed through because he pursued those Babylonian kings, not just up there north in Israel to Dan, but all the way to Damascus and defeated them, rescued Lot, retrieved all that that was taken by those kings. And then when he returned back into Israel, came near Jerusalem to a valley called Shabbat, the Valley of the Kings. How fitting a name was that. this was a conclave conference for kings just think about that now here we come to this scene and this situation and what i feel like is this that abram's victory over the enemies that he had defeated was a prophetic indicator or precursor of a later battle 400 years later when joshua would go in and conquer Canaan, the very promise made to Abram now fulfilled in Joshua, and this to me is the classic picture in your Bible and mine of our pathway to conquest because Canaan is not a type of heaven. There's no ugly giants in heaven. Cain is a type of the land of promise that God wants us to take now, personally, individually. Come on, uh, if you will, in the church, in the culture. This is God's mission. Hallelujah. And so he calls you and me to be enjoined in that mission. And therefore, as the land is conquered, that's a picture of how Jesus said in Matthew 5:5. The meek shall inherit the earth. He didn't say the meek inherit heaven. Now heaven's in there. It's a part of the whole deal. It's new heaven and earth is always together in God's thinking, right? He says, the meek inherit the earth. Our inheritance is not all in heaven. It's also right down here on terra firma earth. Thank you. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Hey, don't get me started. But are you getting the picture here right now? We're not waiting to die and go to heaven to have the victory. There's victory now, thank you. Now, what happens, I believe, is Abram's life is a typological, is that a word, later on up, pattern for your and my journey toward conquest. Ever thought about this? Before God could possess Canaan, he had to possess Abram, later on possess Joshua. Before God can conquer the earth, he has to conquer some men and women. The Ecclesia is a people conquered by the love of God who have been called to govern the earth as representatives of the eternal kingdom. So, this morning, get ready, let's take a journey with our spiritual daddy, Abram. Yeah, he's your spiritual daddy. What do you mean? You say you never met him. Well, I hadn't met Abram either. But through Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, you're related to Abraham. And the blessing came upon woo, the Gentiles to fulfill the blessing and calling upon Abram. So, Matthew 1, Jesus is son of Abraham, is son of David. Through Abraham, we access our redemption. Through David, we accept our royalty. Okay, this morning, I'm so glad to announce I have five talking points. Here's the first one, the call of Abram. Everybody say call. No time to turn, but chapter 12 tells us about Abram's call. Where's he called from? Well, basically, He is called out of Haran, north of Israel. He left early with his family from Ur the Chaldees over in Babylon, eastward. And uh, they made their way to Haran. Then, of course, they came into the land of Canaan. Why is it important to rehearse Abram's call? Because with Abram, as with you and me, it starts with a call. I'm gonna give you a real deep revelation, so roll up your pants. It's gonna be deep. You and I didn't call ourselves. God called us. Galilean fishermen didn't come seaside and walk up to the prophet from Nazareth and say, We want to volunteer to be in your movement. Didn't happen that way. Jesus came along where they were, where they were working, and said, follow me. And amazingly, they followed him immediately. How do you explain that? Well, you find it in the Bible. Jesus said in John six forty four, no one comes to me, but that the Father draws him. How did Jesus know to pick? Peter, James, John, Simon the Zealot, James the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Philip, who Andrew, Matthew, Thomas, Bartholomew, called Nathanael, and yes, even Judas. How did Jesus know to select those 12? Father told him who he had been drawing. We didn't call ourselves. You say, well, I knew that. Listen, you get in situations where things get tough. Sometimes it's called <clears throat> ministry, been there and done that. And you say, man, they're all opposing me and what God wants to do. How do I survive this? Maybe I need to volunteer to gather away. No, you're there, God called you and you're not released from the call till he releases you. This is simple, but it's important. We we start with a call, and this is how important it is. Most of us, when we get that call, start a journey, because we know we got to go to some places where we've not been before. And one reason that Abram had to leave where he was with his family, and when he got to Haran, he really left his family because his daddy, according to Joshua 24:3, Terah and Granddad Nahor, they were worshiping idols. Now something wrong here. Abram can be traced back to Shem, the second son of Noah, the son that carries the covenant. Abraham's got the right genealogy, but he's living in a house with the right genealogy, being covenantally unfaithful. It's the same thing in Jesus' day. John the Baptizer and Jesus come along to those rather arrogant, pharisaical, religious, apostate leaders of Judaism who bragged about their lineage back to Abram and said, your father's the devil. Why? You got the right genealogy. You got the wrong behavior. It's never been about genealogy. It's been about covenant. We're called, amen? That's the first thing. Number two, how am I doing? I got number one out of the way pretty fast, didn't I? Listen, I can be brief if not amazing. Number two, Everybody say, covenant. Chapters 15 and 17, God enters covenant with this man named Abram. And it's all based in Genesis 15, 6, where God says to Abram, Look up and see the stars of the heaven and count them if you can. So shall your seed or descendants be. And with that staggering, stunning, whoo, startling statement, <laughs> Abram says, I'll believe that. That's amazing. You mean he believes it? The guy's named Abram. What's Abram mean? Exalted father. But when he goes into Canaan and introduces himself, I'm Abram, Canaanites say, well, good to meet you, father. Where are your children? I don't have any. Why are you called father? Well, the rest of the story is going to unfold. And so here is Abram Justified by faith, when he believed what God said about his descendants being as numerous as stars in the sky, God put righteousness into his account. And Paul builds on that in Galatians and Romans on the whole basic, you know, teaching of justification by faith. But God does more than just uh, say that to him. You've got to love God in every way, right? He's awesome. God's gonna do more than just speak to Abram. He's gonna come down and condescend into a contemporary cultural procedure whereby men made covenant with each other. God's gonna speak, as Hebrew says, not just his word, but give an oath and covenant. And so in the ancient world, men made agreements. They would stand back to back and uh, they were surrounded by animal parts they had slain. And they stood back to back, and then they each made a circle, came back face to face, and they made covenant. They made a figure eight, by the way, which meant a new entity will come out of making covenant. Don't have time to develop that, do I? And when these men came face to face, here's what they did. They exchanged robes. They were saying, what's mine is yours, I'll share it. Or I'm going to have a double life, not being double-minded, no, 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 a double life. I've got your life, I've got my life. Next time they did, they exchanged belts, because on their belts, they carried their weapons. When you're in covenant with, with people of God, thank you, covenant brothers and sisters, have your back when you go to war. And then, thirdly, they make a slight slit. That's hard to say. A slight slit in the right hand. They shake hands, right hand of fellowship. Their bloods merge and a scar is formed. So that procedure put these men into covenant. Covenant's released blood. Every covenant has a scar. Have you ever thought about this? When you go there, if you go, who? When Jesus comes, if you go earlier, when you seem his resurrected, glorified body still has marks and scars of his redemption eternal reminders of the awesome thing he did for us. So here we see in this covenant, then the Lord God, you know, puts Abram into a deep sleep. And then God comes down as a smoking oven, flaming torch. Can you save the father and the son and walk together? Because the covenant God calls you and me to enter into is the one he already has. In himself. God's meant this covenant thing forever. Okay? Now, in chapter 17, the covenant that's cut is sealed through circumcision. Abram's 99 years age. This was basically more than a physical mark on the male body. This was... This is very important that you hear this now. It's very key. This procedure was basically God adopting Abram as a son. It's adoption. Why did God have to adopt Abram as a son? Because Abram could not become a father without being a son. Look, it's a name change. Right? Abram to Abraham. I love this. God just, Malcolm Smith taught us this years ago. I honor Malcolm today. He says, God just came right down there in Abram's name and inserted his name. Jehovah, short for Jehovah is Yah, short for Yah is Ah. So God just added A-H to Abram's name. Now he's Abraham, even Sarai became Sarah. And after those name changes, nine months later, here comes Isaac. Mm. So the point is, Abram has to become a son of God in order to have his descendants inherit the land of Canaan. The earth will be inherited by sons of light. That will require battling and overcoming sons of darkness. Paul said, you are not sons of darkness. You are not to live in fear. You're not to live in hiding. You are sons of light. Let the light shine. Let the thing get released out there. Now more than ever, let the light shine and the bugs exit. Thank you. It's time for exposure. It's happening right now, but beyond exposure, how about some prosecution of evil? Hey, don't get me started now. Don't you all ag me on here. But let me just say that to you right now. This is important. We have to know that we're called, we're in covenant with the Lord God of heaven and earth. Thank you. And that means, number three, we enter, yes, the cause. Are we in the middle of that right now? We know there's a cause. King David said there was one. Dutch Sheets said there was one. (laughs) There is a cause, and the word includes, there's a history. God is on a mission. God has a cause, he is purposeful, he is intentional, he is relentless, and he thinks he's winning. Yeah, he has already won legally, judicially, covenantally. Thank you. But now his victory is being manifest experientially and powerfully through his people that is called into covenant with himself. I call it the kingdom plan. The plan doesn't unfold until you're called and covenanted. Thank you. So what is God's kingdom cause? Good question, let me try to answer. In context here, it's God and Abram working together on possessing and stewarding the earth until it reflects heaven. That's the mission. God's into ownership. God's not a renter. No offense to those of us who've had to rent maybe in our lives at one point or another. That's not the issue, that natural thing. The spiritual thing is we need to say we're going to steward this because our God says we own this. The Lord God has a cause. And you know what's amazing to me? His cause is worked through fallible human beings. Yet God is still and will be ultimately successful. This includes personal lives, it includes nations. The other day I was thinking about this. Okay, we had a fallible Supreme Court, fallible Congress, fallible Attorney General, who failed to face the undeniable fact of election fraud and theft. Don't get me started again. Romans 13.4 says the civil ruler has a sword to avenge evil. I got news for you. The church, Ephesians 6.17, has a spiritual sword. The rhema word in our mouth. And evidently in the providence and wisdom of God, it takes both swords functioning for God's purpose to manifestly prevail because God ordained the civil ruler just like he ordained family and ordained the church. So the civil ruler has a responsibility somewhere along the way. They need to step up. And we're stepping up in the body of Christ as Ecclesia to say there's a sword that's coming out of the mouth of Yeshua, the one on the white horse, but there's a sword in your mouth and my mouth. Is that right? And we are releasing what God wants released in the earth. Yes, it's war. It's like Abram. Abram's cause was to what? To enter in, to do war, and possess the land of Canaan, which is a type of the earth. This may shock you. Romans 4, is in your Bible, and Paul says there in that verse that Abraham is the heir of the whole world. Think about that. Abraham and his descendants, and by the way, those mean the descendants who ultimately get manifest in Yeshua, the seed of Abraham, and those of us who are in Christ, we are heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. His inheritance that he's going to secure is including you and me in that inheritance. It's not separate from him. Come on. It's tied up with him. Amen. So this is important. God's got a cause. Okay. So we got, everybody say call. Everybody say covenant. Everybody say cause. Well, now here comes something that you won't believe. I'd even have this in here probably. The kingdom cause guarantees conflict. Welcome to the NFL. Conflict. And one day I was complaining, I mean, excuse me, praying. (laughs) Maybe I was doing both. The other day I told somebody, I said, don't watch eight hours of news. Just get the highlights. Just watch Truth Teller Tucker and you'll be all right. Don't sit there and watch that thing all night. How many times do I need to hear what the enemy's doing? Okay, we're in conflict, aren't we? And Jesus is gonna shock you, promised it. In the world system, you'll have tribulation. The word means pressure. You feel squeezed at times? Oh, yeah. Man, I feel squeezed by stuff. Oh, I'm in trouble. I'm, I'm almost leaving my notes. Okay, but <clears throat> <laughs> but I begin to realize that conflict was built in from the start. I say Cain murdering Abel, that's called conflict. Whew. I would say that Nimrod and his crowd building the Tower of Babel. That was conflict. Why was a tower built? It was built for two reasons, to introduce to the earth globalism, and number two, to deny the blessing due nations. If you want to know what's going on today, you better study Genesis 10, 11, and 12. Because Genesis 10, all the nations came forth from my three sons, Noah, Mrs. Noah could say, Japheth, Shem, and Ham. And there's 70 of them in Genesis 10. Interesting, 70 is a representative number of all the nations. Do you know that? Because when Jesus in his ministry sent out 12, he sent them to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He sent out 70 to beyond the borders of Israel. It's always been about the nations. God authored ethnicity. God give us wisdom in this hour of racial confusion. I mean, how much more can we just misunderstand this? My Bible says you and I are part of the chosen race. The royal priesthood. Come on, the holy nation. The church got to take on nationhood to learn how to govern. And, of course, the possession of God's people himself. How about the conflict between Pharaoh and the sons of Israel living and working in Egypt? The conflict of four globalistic empires that Daniel prophesied down. The four metal statue: Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. There's conflict there. It's my conviction, I don't have doctrine on this, that when Jesus was tempted on the mountain and the enemy brought before him all the kingdoms, he brought before him those kingdoms right there that Daniel had prophesied down. Anyway, no time to labor that. And then you got Herod opposing the Christ child and later on John the baptizer. I'll boil it down to where are we today? Here's where we are today. We are being ensnared on every level. And that's why the conflict is raging in the house of God, in the ecclesia of God. Because statism, the worship of the state, underlies Marxism, socialism, leftism, globalism, which is all against life. Against true gender identity, against the family, against the church, and even against nations. So the answer to the conflict between Genesis 10 and 11 is found in chapter 12 of Genesis when God calls Abram, adopts him as a son, makes him a father. Every nation right now across the earth has to choose between uh, covenant or chaos. Let's just choose covenant. God's people set the way, open the door, be the forerunners, be the pioneers to say, we accept covenant with God. We must overcome the anti-God and anti-Christ worldviews on and in all seven mountains of culture. Tell Lance Walnow, well, I said that. Well, here's number five. We've got call, covenant, cause, conflict. Now we come to the, oh man, the word we're wanting and needing and looking for. Can you say conquest? The conquest of all the enemies against God's kingdom cause. This comes into such sharp focus in Genesis 14. It's amazing. I love this story for a lot of reasons. The meeting happens in the Valley of Kings. I said, this is a conclave of leaders, all with their interests, responsibilities, and aspirations coming together. And the meeting, don't just love God, the, the meaning gets interrupted basically by a king that maybe nobody invited except God. A king named Melchizedek. His name's hard to pronounce, just call him Mel. And he's a king priest of Jerusalem. He is a priest before. There was priesthood in the earth. Yeah. In fact, he was a Gentile priest. He was a priest. Gentile, meaning a nation priest. There wasn't a Jew till Abram came along. So Melchizedek shows up and I'll summarize, basically says, I'm here in the name of El Elyon. And they didn't record that meeting, so we could listen to it. But if they had, they'd been servile in that meeting say, who dat? <laughs> because up till now, God's Elohim, creator. Right? Let us create. But now, Elohim is also El Elyon. Oh, God Most High Possessor of heaven and earth. God not only creating but possessing heaven and earth and calling you and me to be enjoined in that same mission and in that same task. You know what's amazing to me in God's name, His purpose is, is discovered that's why names are important in God and in people so the Lord God possesses the earth he wants his people to possess it with him and then when Mel shows up he goes right to Abram gives him bread and wine excuse me grape juice it's another day, another lesson, uh, but it gives him the communion meal by revelation, and he blesses Abram. blessed be Abram. Wow. By L. L. Jan. I don't know. Maybe I'm just too far afield, but uh, maybe we all just want to celebrate with Abram his victory. Oh, those Babylonian kings, I don't know. But come on, you know your Bible. I'm about to round it up. Aren't you glad this is point five? <laughs> Abram responds to him. He know. He, I think Abram had a revelation. Here's somebody that's got a level in God I don't have yet. These guys have never met, they're just operating by revelation. Do you, you like that kind of stuff? I'm not trying to be spooky or spacey, but man, it's just good to know people heart to heart, spirit to spirit by revelation of God. And when you have that revelation, that revelation, it helps you overcome all the challenges of some relationships, another lesson, another day. So what does Abram do? Well, he tithes to him. Well, where'd Abraham learn that? First time tithing is mentioned in the Bible. Abraham just tithes to him. And of course, he's tithing out of the spoils of war. Not just what he had, but he was tithing what he had recently come into. I said he tithed, out of the spoils and products of war. Thank you. So I'm saying this is classically a transfer of wealth. From the Babylonian kings that got defeated by Abram and his army to a priest, a king. That has blessed Abram and served him the communion meal. I'm saying it to you right now that biblically we need to think about tithing on a level that most people maybe don't go to. But it's the first understanding in scripture of the tithe. The tithe is basically a spiritual weapon. Every ancient king had a war chest to finance his military campaigns. King Jesus has a war chest. I love what Apostle Scott Reese said. I'll credit him because he said it. (laughs) We're up there in Moline, Dutch and I were together. What a shock that was to our systems. On Saturday night and Sunday morning, both Dutch and I each preached an hour and a half. I said, it's a new day. (laughs) But Scott got up to receive the offering, Apostle Scott. I gotta say it, this is unofficial, but it's true. Scott was a student of mine. (laughs) Well, you're a family. You're going to get more information. Jane Hammond was a student of mine. Tom Hammond, her husband-to-be at that time, was. Tom and Jane met parking cars at cowboy football game. I got the skinny on them, so don't let them come up here and tell you stuff. But okay, I look at—I got the skinny on them. And so Tom comes up to me one day and says, "Oh, Brother Jim said my dad's coming to town, and he—he's not officially on the schedule. Would you might want him to speak in class?" Bishop Bill Hammond said, "Is the Pope Catholic?" <laughs> of course I do. <laughs> That's how I met Bishop. But Scott got up and said this before he received the offering for Dutch and me. I'll never forget it. Because it's so, shall I say, Melchizedekal. Here's what Scott said. The enemy is fearful of your offering. Hello. And with that revelation, we have almost inadvertently, but simultaneously destroyed the myth. Well, we're not under the Old Testament. We're not under the Levitical priesthood. It's fulfilled in Christ. I know that Jesus died a Levitical lamb, but he rose again as an Melchizedek priest. So tithing's before the law. Tithing's a lifestyle. I learned to tithe as a Baptist boy. I remember going to Sunday school as a kid. I had two nickels. And one fell out of my pocket. Went down to the sewer drain. I was on the way to Sunday school. And I said, oh no, Lord, there went your nickel. <laughs> but... But the reason God's raising our faith to new levels about finance, come on, is not so we can aggrandize ourselves and flourish just personally. It's about the cause. It's about the cause. I mean, there are enemies of the gospel who tithe. Don't get me started. Well, I'm going to do one last thing and then pray. This is called a New Testament footnote because if I just preached the old, somebody probably criticize that. So go to 1 Corinthians 15. This is free, no extra charge. But I just feel like it's important to us. I want to give the big picture here. And the reason is because we've got so much confusion going on about the future, about the end times. And I just want to say something here. I'm not a hey, listener. Uh, I'm on a journey, we're all still learning, but here's something that Paul said that just helped me see something that we need to see. Uh, Turn, if you don't mind, 1 Corinthians 15, and verse number 20. Famous resurrection chapter. The reason I want to see this as we close is because a true prophetic people do more than see what's around them. They have a vertical perspective to see what's above them. But prophetic people can see the very end of a matter and take steps and plan to implement what they see at the end. Here's what Paul does. I told him not to call me right now. Okay, here we go. Let's skip down to verse uh, 23 because it talks about the resurrection of Jesus and Christ the first fruits, all, all that. Here we go. Verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 15. But each in his own order, Paul writes, Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Everybody say coming. The word coming is parousia, P A R O U S I A, the most famous word for coming of the Lord. It's also a word that just means presence. Or Paul said to the Corinthians earlier, I'm coming among you. And the word he used was "prusia." So it's nothing spooky about that. It's just the Greek word for coming. And when you're there, you're present. Then comes the end. And that's the word telos. Okay, T-E-L-O-S. When he, that is Jesus, hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he's abolished all rule, authority, and power. Okay, how many know that Jesus defeated death by coming out of the tomb? But we're still having funerals. I conducted one last Wednesday. But at the resurrection of the believers, at Christ's coming, at the end, come on, death is abolished. It's totally wiped out. All right, and then he goes on to say in verse twenty-five, he must—who's he? Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that'll be abolished is death. Have you got this? Perusia coming, Telos end, or last is Eschatos. It's So, do you hear this? Death is the last enemy to be abolished and removed. Enemy of what? The enemy of God, of God's purpose, of God's cause, of God's eternal kingdom plan. Well, I wasn't born yesterday, but I think I can say this if death is the last enemy that's abolished, all other enemies of the gospel and of God's kingdom agenda for the earth and the universe therefore must be defeated and removed and abolished before the end. Honey, we just don't win in heaven, we win on earth. And I know this talks about, people say, oh, let's argue this. No, no, no. Don't be trying to find COVID vaccinations in Revelation 13. That just won't work. Excuse me. That was not in my notes. But I'm just trying to give you a perspective. What happens at the end? Uh, Oh, this is important. Talos means, yes, the end, but it means purposeful movement toward God's intended goal. If you can't remember Talos, it's like football. Get the ball in the end zone and score six points and hope your kicker can make it seven. Let's get the bigger picture. Let's get the prophetic perspective. This is right here, this is the heart of the gospel. You take away the resurrection, we don't have a gospel. If you got a resurrection, you got a gospel and you got real good theology. Don't argue about Jesus coming back, when's he coming back? I thought the Lord said nobody knows that, but a lot of people seem to write books that claim they do. Hey, let me simplify it for you. Jesus returns at the end. So I'm trying to close, but I've been warned about the open heaven here. I'm closed. It's only 11 o'clock in Denver. I'm into until theology. Jesus must reign at Father's right hand until all his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. Fireful ministers are given until we come into the unity of faith, the maturity of the stature that relates to the fullness of God in Christ. Jesus is seated, Acts three twenty one in the heavens at the Father's right hand. And he's seated there. He remains there until all the prophets prophesied comes to pass. i not trying to mess with you, but I'm trying to tell you. Not only is the end good, the goal is good. But to get there, there are victories along the journey. So despite the challenges or setbacks or mishaps or missteps, I want to tell you right now. The Lord's releasing victory in his people. We're called to victory. We're called to be overcomers. This, and this documents that the victory of the kingdom causes the overcoming of the enemies of the gospel in history. God's sons and daughters inherit the earth and the nations. Your and my spiritual biography can be defined by the steps of Abraham. Let's all stand. Thank you for your patience today. You're a wonderful, wonderful people. Hallelujah. As you stood this morning, I felt a wind come in the room and blow upon us and I felt that strongly because you are a mature people. You are well educated in God and the Word of God. You're linked with some of the best and most awesome leadership in the whole world. You represent the Ecclesia so well and we honor you for that. But I just felt a fresh wind come And it's simple, but I'm going to say this before Rachel and the team lead us in worship. just want to say this. When the wind came in Ezekiel 37, you know your Bible, all of a sudden the bones, there was a movement. The bones started connecting. And then the bones connecting got covered, flesh and sinew. And then the breath came and gave the connected bones covered with sin and flesh, life. You talk about life. We say, Lord, revive us. The Lord revives what's been first vived. There's new life today for us in this. We're connecting today better than ever. We're getting covered by spiritual coverings that are not smotherings, but those that bring our destiny, calling, purpose, and gifting forth because we're all ministers of the new covenant. Then, of course, you know the story. The prophet prophesies to the wind. And then what happens out of this graveyard stands an exceeding great army ready to be commanded. Lord Jesus, King Jesus, command us today. Command your army Thank you, Spirit, wind, for blowing across our world again. In this hour of distress among nations, the turmoil, the confusion, the civil government's ineptitude, Lord, you will meet us. You will surely meet us today as we prayed across our land. Focused on one place as we did here earlier, as Apostle Tim led us. We feel in our heart today, Lord, this spirit that you're releasing that will begin to trigger a transition. Will begin to manifest on a new level the reset that we must have to go forward. So spirit blow. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Out of graveyards you raise up armies. Yeshua, Commander-in-Chief, Michael and the angels standing up already waiting for us to join them. Right now in the building several healings. Someone here in their left eye is having difficulty with depression that eye and uh, the wrong pressure is a door opener for glaucoma in the name of Jesus. We said the Lord reveals that to heal it. And you come up afterwards and tell me, or tell the leadership, the Lord reveals it to heal it. This is not a game, this is not magic. The Lord just reveals stuff to heal it. Right now. And also someone here today with low, (coughs) low red blood cells. And blood flow difficulties. The Lord releases you today. Ezekiel 16:6, 6, the Lord passed you by in your blood and said, Live, live, live. There's so much happening. I'm going to pray, but just let Him move. So, Father, thank you today that we're called to conquer. We're called as overcomers. At times we feel like we're overcome for all that we're fighting and battling that's out there. Where evil has raised its arrogant head. But it's got to reveal to us if we see it biblically, his head is bruised. His head is bruised. Father, I pray right now for a meeting in the Valley of Kings, in the body of Christ, where the generals and the high-level commanders come together. And it's happening already, but I pray right now let a conclave of spiritual kings, mature sons and daughters, Connect on a level they've never been connected before. All because, Lord, you love and bless unity. You love and bless synergy. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I pray protection around our leaders, Lord. Those we are privileged to connect with in our land and in the nations and the body of Christ. could you just one moment just lift up your right hand, the hand of covenant? And right now, Father, thank you. We just re-up again today. (laughs) We raise our right hand and we say we're in for the long haul. We're here to stay in the battle. And we thank you that as we do, you will hold us fast in Jesus' name.